0: Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Beyond the To-Do List. I'm your host, Eric Fisher, and this is the show where we talk to the people behind the productivity. This week, I'm talking with fellow podcaster as well as author Gretchen Rubin. This conversation is all about handling expectations, the expectations we have of ourselves, as well as the expectations that others have of us. Not to mention how digging deep into the knowing of ourselves through that framework will help us develop proper habits, and in the end, ultimately have happiness. This episode is a great companion piece to some of the other recent episodes that I've done, specifically the John Acuff episode when it comes to finishing the work that you've started, as well as the Ian Cron episode all about the Enneagram. This episode kind of forms a triumvirate with those other two, and really rounds them out, I think you'll find. Well, this week, it is my privilege to welcome author, blogger, and fellow podcaster, Gretchen Rubin, to the show. Welcome to the show, Gretchen.
1: I'm so happy to be talking to you.
0: So I was fascinated to find out that you actually were involved a little bit in law before you became an author.
1: I really had a great run as a lawyer, so... Uh, I went to Yale Law School and I was editor-in-chief of the the big law journal there, the Yale Law Journal. And um, and then I went on to clerk for Sandra Day O'Connor on the Supreme Court. And it was during my clerkship for Justice O'Connor that I was like, you know what? I think I would really like prefer to be a writer um, instead of a lawyer. And that's when I began to make the transition. So I had a great experience in law. I definitely don't regret it, but I'm sure glad that I made the switch.
0: So the switch to authorship... Even then, people, you were writing things, like what what people don't know is, is that your recent books, like, that people are familiar with, The Happiness Project, Happy at Home, uh, Better Than Before, and the new book, The Four Tendencies, are all more recent books, but you, you have books that predate that.
1: Yes. No, it's funny. It's one of those things like I worked 10 years to be an overnight sensation. <laughs> yes. Um. A lot of people just assume like, oh, you had a big hit with your first book. I'm like, no, that was my fourth book. And I love the books that I wrote before. You know, And, and really, they, they're all about human nature. To me, they feel very connected. But I think to the outside world, they seem less connected. But I certainly learned many, many lessons about writing and being a writer and being publishing a book, which is a very different actually from being a writer. It's like a whole different career in a way. From those experiences that then I think helped me kind of um, shine, bring to the attention of an audience my books, my later books.
0: How did you go from this idea of writing about JFK to talking about happiness, this somewhat vague word sometimes.
1: Well, it's funny. It was this very inconspicuous moment in my life. So as you say, I was finishing up my biography of John F. Kennedy. And there's a period when you're finishing a book where it's kind of you're finishing that work. And so you begin to have the time to sort of think about other things. And so I was on a bus in the pouring rain and I thought, well, you know, what do I want from life anyway? You know, I had kind of one of those chances to ask myself these big questions that you don't often ponder. And I thought, oh, I want to be happy. And I realized I didn't spend any time thinking about whether I was happier, whether I was even happy, or how I could be happier. And so I thought, well, I should have a happiness project. And that was the phrase that I used in that first thought And I and I often become kind of obsessed with certain subjects. This is something that happens to me all the time. So I got obsessed with happiness. I ran out to the library the next day. I got this giant stack of books about happiness, you know, ancient philosophy, current research, pop culture, everything I could get my hands on and started researching. And at first it was just going to be for me because I was like, I should have a happiness project. But then it was so rich and so deep and so kind of vast that. After a certain point of just doing my own research, I thought, wow, maybe this would be a good topic for my next book. And then I decided, okay, this is really big enough to be a whole
0: book. During the course of that book, you, in other words, had to define what happiness means to you because I think it, defi- it, it has a different definition for many people. One of the themes we'll be touching on all throughout this conversation, I think, is the fact that we are all different and it's about learning what's best for you personally.
1: A hundred percent. and I'm so glad that you like honed in on that as the key idea, because that's really something that I've learned. And with every passing year, I feel like is more and more true that there's no one best way. There's no one right way. There's no way you should be able to do it. It's like, well, whatever works for you. People are different. In some ways, we're very much the same, but our differences are very important. My happiness project looked one way because these are my interests, my values, my temperament. Your happiness project would be very different because you have a whole different set of interest, values, temperament. Now, I think people can learn from each other. I think a lot of people sort of read my happiness project. And they're like, cool, I'm going to do my happiness project and figure out what it would be for me. So they kind of used my framework or my structure or my approach. But then the way they filled in you, you know, the project of the month would be very different. Because you're right. It's funny how often people think like, well, what's the best way? It's like, that doesn't that's not a meaningful question. What's the best way for you? Mm, yes. That's the meaningful question.
0: Yes, exactly. Like that's one of the things that we often hit on and why I have such a a broad collection of different guests on this show is because there's so many different perspectives. I mean, even just in the productivity realm, like one person will say, no, check your email first thing in the morning. That's what works for me. Another will say, no, have me time first and then work out and and then check your email only when you get to your office, whatever shape that takes.
1: No, I felt guilty for years because I'm one of the people like you say who check my email first thing. And I and I and I was like I shouldn't. And I'm also really a morning person, so it's very true for me that if I have something like a challenging intellectual task, I try to do it as early as possible. And all the experts say like don't do your email. That's like low value work. Do that later. And I'm like I finally realized I just can't settle down and concentrate when I'm like what's in my email or like what's happening on Twitter. You know, I just have to like make the rounds and clear that out and then I can focus. Which is fine. That's what works best for me. It's not like, but why would I beat myself up for not doing it some other way? Just because some experts like, well, this is the way you should do it. I'm like, well, doesn't work for me.
0: Yeah, totally. I'm the same way as you. I like to kind of make sure there's no fires, small or large first. Yes, yes.
1: Just like survey the horizon. I don't answer every email, but I like definitely know what's going on in there before I can settle down.
0: Yeah. And even some of these modern email clients where you can say, oh, that's not important today, but it will be something that I want to sit down and take time with Saturday morning. So I'm going to yeah. snooze that email and get it out of my inbox and get a quick win as well as delegate it to my future self for Saturday.
1: Well, that's very advanced. I don't do that, but that's cool. <laughs> that's cool. Yeah.
0: I know we're saying there's not one right approach, but is there one maybe
1: secret secret
0: or (laughs) are are there are multiple approaches for us to then figure out what our happiness is?
1: Well, if you were going to try to be as universal as possible, if you were going to say, what is the secret to happiness? One is what we've been talking about, which is self-knowledge, and that it's only by knowing yourself that you can build A life based on your own interests, your own values, your own temperament. And so you could say that the secrets to happiness is self-knowledge and kind of recognizing what's true about yourself, self-reflection. The other way you could answer that if you were like, well, what is sort of like something in a different ilk? You know, if you were going to use a different perspective to approach the question, probably the best answer would be relationships. And ancient philosophers and contemporary scientists agree that relationships are a key and maybe the key to happiness. And if you look at the people who are the happiest, they're the ones that have the most kind of vital relationships. We need to be able to confide. We need to feel like we belong. We need to have intimate, enduring relationships. We need to be able to get support. And just as important for happiness, we need to be able to give support. And so if you're thinking about, you know, sort of with my happiness project, I was like, well, how would I use my time, my energy, my money to Get the most happiness bang for my buck. Like, what can I do? What's the low hanging fruit? What's the thing? What are the things I can do every day that would just lift my happiness? Anything like that that you can do that broadens or deepens a relationship is probably going to be something that's going to boost your happiness. So, whether you're going to spend the money to go to your college reunion or to throw a party, or whether you're going to take the time to join a book group or to show up to a friend who had a new baby, if you're going to you know, go out of your way to write a note to somebody like, Oh, I saw this cool thing, you know, online where you were quoted. Congratulations, or whatever. These are the kind of things that tend to really over time uh, support our happiness. So relationships.
0: Interesting. Yeah. And I think one of the other key components there is we overlook the fact that we have a relationship with ourselves.
1: Yeah. That's a good way to think <laughs> about it.
0: Yeah. I think that maybe. Some of, or more than maybe we want to admit, of our unhappiness comes from that mental muscle memory where we do things we shouldn't, or we don't do things we should, or we do or don't do them without thinking. In other words, with, without intentionality, we have these good or bad habits for better or for worse.
1: Well, this is one of the reasons that I wrote better than before, because I think you're exactly right. And that when you understand, I mean, habits are like the invisible architecture of everyday life. They're 40% of what we do each day is shaped by our habits. And so, as you say, if you're just mindlessly going through it, you could easily be picking up bad habits or overlooking the opportunity to have a better habit, or you're just are- you're just going through the motions without realizing, hey, if I took some time and thought about how can I shape my habits in a way that's going to get me to have the life that I want, how can I become the master of that uh, that process? And I think it's really true that when you you step back and you think, well, how could I change things in order to get myself where I want to go? I think for most people, there's a lot there that they can do without tremendous amount of effort, you know, because I'm all about like, what's the concrete, easy thing you can do tomorrow? There's a lot you can do um, because you're right. If you don't think about it, it can overtake you in a way. And you just you're you're sort of a pawn of yourself.
0: It can be hard work to form a habit, but once in place, it's pretty common sense that what follows is we would be happier when we have the right habits in place.
1: Absolutely. And the thing that once something's a habit, then you don't have to use willpower and you don't have to use self-control. Just the way we don't decide like, oh, you know, nobody's saying to themselves like, well, should I brush my teeth this morning? Because I've been so good. I brushed my teeth for the last three days in a row. I think I deserve a day off. <laughs> oh, you know what? Starting tomorrow, starting October 1st, I'm going to brush my teeth every day. So it doesn't matter if I don't brush my teeth for September. You know, given the hard day I had at work yesterday, I don't think I should have to brush my teeth. I mean, no, you're just like, you just brush your teeth. You don't think about it. You don't debate it. You don't get into all these mind games. And so as much as you can automate things so that they just happen, now, it's not always as easy as it is with brushing your teeth, because something like going to the gym is a much more complex behavior. So that's one of the things I look at him better than before. Like, how do you kind of cement into place things where there are challenges or hurdles that you have to overcome in the way that it's set up or or in the way that it engages with your mind you know like different people have different ways of thinking about things or approaching things and you have to take that into consideration as you're setting up the habit
0: yeah definitely and you were just now play acting through some of those loopholes that oh (laughs)
1: yeah oh my gosh of the whole book, my favorite chapter to write was um, The Strategy of Loophole Spotting because people's loopholes, like the excuses that we give to let ourselves off the hook for our good habits, they're so imaginative and hilarious. I would just chuckle to myself like an idiot behind my laptop as I was like reviewing these <laughs> loopholes. I had to like I think I had hundreds and I had to, you know, cut it down to like the best six in every because there's cat 10 categories of loopholes. So um, it was becoming a giant list but oh my gosh they're so we're we're so such good advocates for ourselves for why we should be let off the hook it is hilarious
0: yeah and well and the those of us who have mastered loopholes we you know do it in like a combination punch of oh i'll do this one and then that one and then this other one
1: oh 100 i had a friend who once i was keeping count in my head she cycled through five loopholes without like Without me even like interjecting a comment into the conversation, she was just like explaining something to me, and I'm like, "Oh, we go lack of control Uh, tomorrow, fake self-actualization." I mean, I was just like, she just went through them all, you know, in a perfectly conversational way. If you, you know, yeah, so you're right. We can really use them. Everybody has a favorite. My favorite is false choice. Um, That's when I'm like, "Oh, I'm so busy writing, I don't have time to go to the gym," or uh, with all the work that I've been doing, I couldn't possibly. You know, make a dentist appointment. It's like, "Mm, you really don't have time to make a dentist appointment. I think you could. You know, (laughs) that's a false choice.
0: Yeah, mine is very much the tomorrow. I'm always just like, you (laughs) know what? Let me let me get it all together and in order, and I'm going to cross that line, and then I'll just move forward, perfect from then on.
1: No, it's this fantasy that tomorrow is going to be. It'll be easier than today for whatever reason. It's so. It's that is one of the most popular loopholes for
0: sure. So knowing ourselves, as we've been talking about, knowing our loopholes even is, is very helpful because then we can take that knowledge back to either quitting or uh, undoing a bad habit or forming a new habit. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. So, so what's the best way for us to form habits in a in a positive or negative way? Because some people say, well, you want to have a some, you want to be positive, form a proper new habit at, instead of you know saying no, I won't do this moving forward. Do you have a well, thought I think, on
1: that? I think that you I think it comes back to your earlier point, which is it's all about knowing yourself. And I think for some people it is really important to say yes to yourself. Like my sister. You mentioned that I have a podcast, Happier with Gretchen Rubin, and my sister is somebody who always wants things to be in the positive. So she has to think about it in terms of like the positive. I don't mind saying no to myself. And this probably is because I'm in a which we will get to when we talk about the four tendencies. It's not hard for me to say no to myself. Um, so for me, it doesn't really matter. But if you know something about yourself, which is that it always needs to be as a positive, then you want to frame it. And and one of the things that's become really interesting to me, something I didn't expect as I was doing all this research, is that vocabulary, metaphor really matter to people. It really matters that you, if, if it's important to you that things be in the positive, you really want to think about it in the positive. Like, you're not going to quit sugar, you're going to eat more healthfully, to me, I like the idea of quitting sugar. That sounds kind of like exciting and bold, and you know, hardcore. It's, I like that. It's like a oh, dare, like, almost. Yeah, I like quitting sugar, and I like I like the certainty of it. But for some people, that has negative overtones. It almost sounds like addiction, or it sounds too negative or too confining. So, but eating healthfully to them seems like sort of life enhancing and exciting and interesting. I'm going to try new recipes. I'm going to go to a farmer's market. I'm like, eh, I don't cook. I don't go to a farmer's market. I'm quitting sugar. But it matters because how much these things appeal to you. For instance, like piano. Let's, a lot of adults want to reconnect with their love of music, which they might have spent a lot of time on when they were younger. But for whatever reason, it's kind of faded out of their life. Do you want to play piano or are you OK practicing piano? Because it's like it's a little bit different. Are you playing piano? or pra- I'm going to go play the piano for a half an hour that person might not want to go practice piano, you know? And so it's like, think about the words or like a a metaphor that for many people resonates deeply is the journey. To me, that metaphor does not resonate. I don't, Maybe because I don't really like to travel that much, but for whatever reason, that is not a metaphor that has power for me. Clearly, it's a metaphor that has tremendous power for others. But again, I don't try to tap into that because it just sort of leaves me cold. So, so I do think that, you know, there's all this research, should you be, you know, positive or not? And I'm like, Meh, you know, it's whatever works for you.
0: Or, at least it used to be, join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to find and hire great talent fast. In fact, in the minute I've been talking to you, 23 hires were made on Indeed according to Indeed data worldwide. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash to-do list. Just go to Indeed.com slash to-do list right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash to-do list. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. What's something that works so well it basically feels like magic? For me, I'm thinking air conditioning, noise canceling headphones, definitely, meeting free Fridays. What about selling with Shopify? predisposed genetic dispositions for a lot of things in our life yep. as it is. And then we've got this environment and re- existing relationships that are completely unique from others. Yes. So it's never going to be the same, even, right. even the approach and, and even picking and choosing from your 21 strategies is going to be different for every single person for every single habit that we're wanting to change.
1: A hundred percent. And you know, I, I do have 21 strategies for habit change as then people are like, well, 21 is too many. I can't handle that. You give me Five. And the thing is, I'm like, no, it's good that there are 21, because just as you say, some work for some people, but don't work at all for the others. They could even be counterproductive for other people. You really got to know. And some of them are available to us at, at some times of our lives, but not at all times of our lives. So you sort of have to know what the you want to know what your range of possibility is so that you really can pick and choose the ones that are going to work for you. Because, you know, and one of the things that I found when I was working on all the Happiness Project, Happier at Home, Better Than Before, it was, you know, I kept thinking, gosh, people keep saying things to me that just don't ring true. Like, I don't like the happiness project. People keep saying, how did you get yourself to do all that stuff? And I'd be like, well, I figured it would make me happier. So I decided to do it. And they'd be like, but how did you get yourself to do it? Mm-hmm. And I kept thinking, well, I don't understand what the problem is. Like, what's your deal? Um, or, you know, and in, 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 as I was trying to understand how people could or couldn't form habits, I um, you know, a friend of mine t- made this comment which like totally changed the course of my life, my intellectual life, where she said, "Oh, I know I would be happier if I exercised if I had the habit of exercising." And when I was in high school, I was on the track team and I never missed track practice, so why can't I go running now? And I thought, "Well, why not?" Because here the habit of running came effortlessly to her at one time in her life, but now she can't do it even though she seems very committed to trying to build this habit. Why at one time was it effortless and now she can't do it. So that's what led me to the four tendencies to try to understand what are these deep patterns that you see in how people successfully change habits or also why they get frustrated and fail. And then it turned out the four tendencies was much bigger than habits. Cause sometimes it has to do with the habit, but sometimes it's just like, why are you driving me crazy in this particular conversation? <laughs> oh, now I know it's not that it's a habit. It's just like, Oh, I get why, I get your, your ways. I understand where you're coming from.
0: Totally, yeah. And and that, I think, is the easy-to-see through line from the happiness work you were doing through to the habits and now through to the tendencies because it's just that deeper study of why are people the way they are and how uh, they are with themselves as well as how they are with their relationships. And how can we all be more productive, be happier, and be better together, not just by ourselves.
1: A hundred percent. That is exactly right. I mean, that's that's the thing. And that's in particular with the four tendencies, I think it it both helps you manage yourself and understand like, well, how do I push my own buttons to get the life that I want? But then also like why... Why are certain things easier or harder with other people? If, if somebody's not, if I'm giving somebody obviously good advice, which they agree is good advice, why don't they do what I say? Or why is this person constantly in conflict with me? Or, you know, what's going on? If we can understand it, then we can figure out a way to work together more effectively.
0: Speaking of working together more effectively... A huge part of that comes down to finding the right people to work with in the first place. In other words, finding the best candidates for the jobs that you have if you're hiring. And a great way to do that is to use ZipRecruiter because ZipRecruiter doesn't depend on candidates finding you, it finds them for you. In fact, of employers who post a job on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site within one day. And there's no juggling emails or calls to your office. You simply just screen and rate and manage the candidates all in one place with ZipRecruiter's easy-to-use dashboard. Find out today why ZipRecruiter has been used by businesses of all sizes to find the most qualified job candidates with immediate results. And right now, listeners can post on ZipRecruiter for free. That's right, free. Just go to ZipRecruiter.com slash beyond. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash beyond. One more time, try it free. Go to ZipRecruiter.com slash beyond. Find the best candidates for the positions that you have open and win one of the major battles when it comes to having awesome coworkers and employees. So the four tendencies is this personality framework where... That you created. We have to be clear yes. about that. This is brand new. This is from you. Yeah. This is from your research in these other fields we've already talked about. And it's it's basically all about working better with others, understanding our own uh, tendencies, our own kind of natural motivations. And as I was reading this, I kept thinking to myself, that's a little bit like what the Enneagram is, which I had Ian Cron on the show a couple uh, episodes ago to talk about this. What's your opinion on the Enneagram?
1: Well, I love personality frameworks, and I think that they they are really useful to help shed a spotlight on kind of hidden aspects of our of our nature. And so I, I love them all. I love the Enneagram. I love I love a million of the big five. I I love a lot of them. I think that one of the strengths of my my framework the four tendencies is my framework is very very narrow. So the enneagram is trying to pers- is trying to describe your whole personality. It's trying to paint a picture of the kind of person that you are. And when I look at something like that, I think first of all, it seems kind of overwhelming. And second of all, I'm like, well, I'm kind of this and I'm kind of that. I feel like more of a mixture. I don't I don't feel like people are striding around in these nine archetypes the way the framework suggests. As much as it does, I don't. I don't feel like people are packaged together in these whole, in these coherent groups so much. The thing about the four tendencies is the four tendencies is about one extremely narrow aspect of your personality. How do you respond to expectations? Now we all respond to outer expectations, which is like a work deadline, and inner expectations, which is like a New Year's resolution. And sometimes certain kinds of people will um, respond well to an expectation, outer or inner, and some will resist an outer or inner expectations. And that what that's what makes people fall into my four categories, upholders, questioners, obligers, and rebels. But in my framework, it explains, I don't seek to explain anything else about you. So like I'm an upholder, and you could line up 50 upholders. And we would all be very different from each other depending on how considerate of other people's feelings we were, how ambitious we were, how intellectual we were, how curious we were, how introverted or extroverted we were, how neurotic we were, how adventurous we were, how controlling we were, all these things. We could be all mixed up in all different kinds of um, ways, but if you said, how do you respond to expectations the upholders would all respond the same way. And this is a narrow thing, but it ends up being very significant. It comes up a lot in the way that you manage yourself and in the way you engage with other people. But I'm not trying to tell you much more about yourself. Um, and sometimes people want to do that. They're like, all rebels are like X, Y, Z. And I'm like, mm-mm, no, because I've seen rebels who are, You're saying rebels are all kind of selfish and inconsiderate. But I know many highly idealistic, extremely considerate rebels, I mean, extremely considerate rebels. They're still rebels because they fall into the rebel tendency, but it doesn't tell you anything else about what you might expect from their personality. So that's what I think my framework is good, because I think it allows for the way people are kind of more unpredictable than some frameworks would um, predict.
0: This is one of those things I couldn't help but when I was looking at the four tendencies, I couldn't help but think about that, uh, productivity. I'm not sure where it comes from specifically. I know that it's in the, uh, seven habits of successful people. Uh, it's the urgent and important urgent yeah. and you know, yeah. that, that whole thing. Yes. It's whether it's yes or no yeah. on urgent and yeah. important. And that's yes. what you were doing here, where it was either meeting or resisting inner yeah. or outer expectations. I thought this is, this is great.
1: Yeah. And just so people kind of know, can visualize what we're talking about. So this is whether you're an upholder, a questioner, obliger, or rebel. So an upholder readily meets outer and inner expectations. So they meet the work deadline. They keep the New Year's resolution without much fuss. They want to know what's expected of them from others, but their expectations for themselves are just as important. Then questioners question all expectations. They make everything an inner expectation. So if it meets their inner standard for something that they should do, they'll do it. But if it doesn't, they will resist. So they resist anything out or anything that doesn't come from within. And they typically hate anything arbitrary or inefficient or unjustified. Uh, Then there are obligers. And that's my friend on the track team. So obligers readily meet outer expectations, but they struggle to meet inner expectations. So when my friend had a team and a coach waiting for her, she had no trouble showing up. But when she was just trying to go running on her own, she struggled. And then finally, rebels. Rebels resist all expectations, outer and inner alike. They want to do what they want to do in their own way, in their own time. And typically, they don't even tell themselves what to do. (laughs) So you're right. It's like Outer, outer, inner, outer, inner. You know, it's like yeah. each one is a different variation, yeah, of the combination of meets and resists, inner and outer expectations.
0: And then you can start to imagine when, say, one person, one one tendency, uh, starts to work with or is married mm-hmm. to, for that matter, uh, yes. one of the others, and you've got to figure out where the friction lies and how to yeah. work best with each other.
1: Absolutely. So, um, And by the way, there's a quiz online. If people usually know what they are. People around them are just from hearing the description. But there is a quiz online at happiercast.com slash quiz if people want to take the quiz. But um, you know, something that you point out, this, and I have a whole section of the book that's like what happens when people pair up, whether it's in romance or at work or parent-child or whatever, like certain combinations work better Typically now, because of all the different ways that people are made and built and all like to be to have a successful marriage, like there's a million different things. But if you're just looking at the part about how you respond to expectations, if you're just thinking about tendency, one of the things that you would say is, well, it's pretty hard for an upholder and a rebel to get together because they just are very opposite personalities and they're very extreme personalities. And they they really don't see the world in the same way. They don't have the same kind of sense about how they want to use their time They really don't have – they have many values that really don't line up. So that can be hard if you have an upholder. Now, I've definitely heard of partners and, like, married people who are upholders and rebels. It tends to be tougher. On the other hand, like, rebels and obligers, almost always, if a person is a rebel and they're paired up with somebody, either in romance or at work, like they have – you know, they're a founding team – Almost always the rebel is paired with an obliger. Now, there are exceptions, but almost always. And so if someone's a rebel and somebody else is around them, I'm like, "Mm, chances are very, very good that that person is is an obliger. Um, Because that's a much more stable, successful kind of pairing. And then you get into situations like you are t- you manage a team of all different tendencies. Well, then you got to figure that out. You know, so there's things that you could do if you knew, well, people are going to have different perspectives on this. How could I think it through in all the different ways that they would think about it? Or maybe I understand why people, I'm having certain kinds of conflicts or frustrations based on the tendencies.
0: For sure. Yeah. Well, and so you said you're an upholder. And so I think if if I think back to... You were getting all these answers. You were saying you were getting all these answers from people who were like, "Well, how did you make yourself do that?" Well, that's inherent in yep your upholderness that you meet uh, outer and inner expectations. So you have that naturally in you where others don't. A
1: hundred percent. And now I so much under better have so much more empathy and compassion for other people because I understand there's certain things that just are. P- easier for upholders than they are for the other tendencies they just come more naturally and there's good sides to that there's also downsides to that all the tendencies have strengths and weaknesses but as to something like how did you get yourself to do all this stuff in your happiness project or how did you get yourself to switch from law to writing i'm like i just decided to do it and then i did it you know and other people are like what you know and so now i understand okay it's not that hard for me but how, to, how would i help somebody else do it in the way that's right for them Because there's definitely things you could do. But now I understand why people had that reaction.
0: So the people that listen to the show, I know, are very much in the vein of, I struggle with getting myself to do the things that I want (laughs) to do or should do. So how do you suggest they start, once they recognize that in themselves, and maybe they know which tendency they are, how do they progress from there?
1: So very typically, when a person has ideas like, I can't get myself to do the things I want to do for me. I can always make time for other people, but I can't make time for myself. I keep promising myself something and not following through. Something so important to me, I don't understand why it's not reflected in my life. These are very typically associated with obligers. Now, it can come up with the other tendencies, but very often it's with obligers. And that makes sense because... Obliger is the biggest tendency. It is the one that the largest number of people fit into for both men and women. It is the biggest tendency. You're either an obliger or you have many obligers in your life. They are the rock of the world. And so if you are having this struggle, my first thing to say to you is you are not alone. Many people have exactly the same problem. And it's not that you're lazy. It's not that you lack willpower. It's not that you should be able to do something the way your upholder sister-in-law who's like me can do it. You just need to figure out the way to crack the code for an obliger. And here is the answer. Here is the solution. Here is the thing that always works. And it is super simple once you understand what it is that you need. If you're an obliger and you readily meet outer expectations, but you're struggling to meet your expectations for yourself, which you are because that is the definition of an obliger, the solution is to create outer accountability For whatever that inner expectation might be. And once you understand that what you need to do is to create outer accountability, there are a million ways. And I have loved seeing the ingenious, imaginative ways that uh, that obligers have created outer accountability in circumstances where I would have thought, I don't even know how you would do that, but they have figured out ways. Most simple solution, like my friend at the time, I didn't know she was an obliger because I hadn't invented my system. But now I would say to her, what you need is outer accountability, just like the team and the coach. You need something like that. So you need to sign up for a class where the teacher is going to notice if you're not there. And by the way, you're taking somebody's slot. So if you don't go, some, that means somebody else can't can't go. Or you're going to pay for a class where it's going to hurt you in your pocketbook if you don't go. Or you're going to sign up for a trainer who's going to be uh, annoyed with you if you don't show up. Or you're going to work out with a friend who's going to be annoyed if you don't show up. Or you're going to go with your dog in the morning and your dog's going to be so disappointed if he doesn't get his morning run that he loves so much. Or you're going to think about your duty to be a role model for other people. I want to model good behavior for other people. I want to model the habit of exercise. I want to model the habit of keeping my promises to myself. I'm going to tell my family I'm doing this or my coworkers I'm doing this. So they're going to hold me to it. Or I'm going to raise money. I'm going to run 5K for a charity that's important to me and they're not going to have as much money if I don't follow through. Or maybe I can even think of my future self. Well, the Gretchen right now doesn't want me to do it, but future Gretchen is going to be so disappointed with me if now Gretchen doesn't go for a run. There's a million ways to do it. Once you realize that that's what you need, but a lot of times obligers don't really quite understand that that's the missing puzzle piece. And so then they try to fix it using other solutions, which to my mind don't work because they don't go to the fundamental problem, which is the need for outer accountability.
0: Right. And we've been trying to fix the problem with other people's solutions.
1: So so typically, like, let's say you're a questioner. Questioner is the second largest tendency. So there's a lot of people who are questioners. If, you're, if you've got a questioner talking to an obliger, again, talking about when people pair up. If you have a questioner talking to an obliger, what they will typically say something is like this. If you think that running is so important to you, why don't you just do it? I mean, just stop talking about it all the time. Just do it or don't do it, but I don't want to hear you talking about it anyway. Why don't you just sit down and think about what's really important to you, why this really matters to you. Really get clarity on what you want and why and why this is going to be different. And once you have that clear motivation, that inner clarity – then you'll have no trouble doing it. And the obligers like, okay, I'm going to sit around here and ponder my inner motivation for, you know, unto infinity. And it's not going to make a difference. That would work for a questioner because questioners are like, why am I doing this? They want justification. They want clarity. They want rationale. They want to have what they want to know that it's an inner expectation. Why do I expect this from myself? What do I expect from myself? And then they can execute because they can meet inner expectations. That doesn't work for obligers. And so you have somebody who's very well-intentioned in giving what they think is like priceless, valuable advice, but it's just not – it doesn't resonate because obligers just see the world in a different way.
0: Well, and not to paint the rebel in a negative light necessarily, but they seem like they would be the people who don't care (laughs) about their own inner as well as their outer. So how do you get them to do anything, not in like a manipulative way, but like in Hmm. a cooperative, a collaborative way?
1: Well, that is a really interesting question. It's something that rebels themselves think about a lot because a lot of the the strategies that work for the other tendencies don't work for rebels. And certainly, as you say, the fact that somebody won't do what you ask or tell them to do is something that can cause a lot of conflict (laughs) in relationships. So here are the two things to think about with rebels if you're trying to manage yourself or manage a rebel. The first is to remember that Rebels can do anything they want to do. They can do anything they choose to do. They always want to be choosing. Why am I running right now? Because I feel like running or I choose to run. So one way that you can kind of appeal to the rebel um, tendency is to remind them of their identity because they always want to be authentic to their true identity. So if you're tapping into their ideas of like – I want to be a responsible leader. I want to be a powerful voice for change. I want to be a loving, consistent parent. I want to be energetic and healthy. Um, I'm not the kind of person who would let other people down. Um, I'm a considerate team member. Um, You know, these are identities. And when you can show somebody that what they're doing is inconsistent with their identity then often it doesn't then they see like oh this isn't the person that i want to be and related to that or another way to think about it is information consequences choice you give the the rebel the information that he or she needs in order to understand the situation you tell them the consequences of their actions or inactions and then you allow them to make a choice so you could say to somebody um you know, you're always coming late to these meetings. And when you come late to a meeting, um, it makes me feel like you think that you're more important than I am and that your time is more important than my time. And it also means that I can't rely on you. And, you know, I just, I don't even want to see you in my calendar because I know you're going to screw up my whole, my whole day. So I, I don't want to put you in my calendar. That's information, consequences, choice. I'm not going to say like, so you have to start coming on time because if I say you have to start coming on time, then the rebel's like, you can't make me. I don't have to <laughs> do is. anything. You're not the boss of me. But if I'm just like, this is the situation, or you know, you, you could use it in a in a way where it's more like, you know, if you come to the staff meetings, you get to have input onto like who get who does what, who what who works on what project. If you don't come, then everybody who's at the meeting is going to take the most interesting projects for themselves. You're going to be left with the dregs. So the meetings on Wednesdays at 10 a.m. So you know, up to you, man. And then it's like, okay, do I want to come and like get to pick a cool project, or I don't want do I want everybody else to pick a cool project and I get the bad project? No, I want to come to the meeting because that's what I want. That's what works for me. You know, so, but, but the problem is two things. One is with the, with the rebel, you have to allow negative consequences to fall. You have to, you cannot protect them. You cannot rescue them from any kind of negative consequences. This is, can be very painful to witness. And also if you're partnered with somebody, like you're married to them, sometimes those negative consequences could fall on you too. And so that's something that you have to really think about. Yeah. And the other thing to think about is like, you may be the problem, You think the rebels the problem. You're actually the one who's getting in the rebel way because every time you nag them or remind them or like give them a helpful list of priorities or like post a note on the refrigerator about everything that has to get done today, you ignite in the rebel the spirit of resistance. You make them want to say, you're not the boss of me. You can't tell me what to do. So and I've heard like hilariously, I've heard from several rebel teenagers about the same specific anecdote. It's so funny. It's that they were making their bed. And then somebody in their household is like, don't forget to make your bed. And then they're like, they stop and refuse to finish. Or even one kid said he actually unmade his bed. Oh, it's like, I'll make my bed because I want to make my bed. I'm not going to make my bed because you tell me to. Yeah. You know. So these reminders can actually hurt rebels. So you got to remember that some- with rebels, sometimes you just say nothing. If it's something that they already know, You don't want to keep telling them or suggesting that they do something because then they will resist.
0: So if we were standing in an old time classroom and I had like one of those overhead projectors with the transparencies and the markers and things, if we were to take the four tendencies and then put that slide over or that transparency over what we were talking about earlier with the habits, things suddenly start to become a lot clearer.
1: Right. Yes. So you can see why something like the strategy of accountability, which is really one of the most commonly discussed and widely understood um, strategies of habit change, you would see that it's absolutely essential. It's like top, 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 top of the list for, for obligers might be actually counterproductive for, for um, rebels. And might not be necessary for upholders and questioners. I mean, maybe they would benefit from it, but maybe not. And if you're trying to create like a device, a medical device, and you're like, oh, we're going to provide accountability to everyone, maybe you don't have to provide accountability for everyone because that's expensive. Maybe you just need to provide it for a certain number of people. It's a lot of people because obligers is a big tendency. But then also something like monitoring. Monitoring is something that questioners tend to love because they love data. They love information. They like to customize things. So monitoring, it's like they love to track their steps or their hours or their budget. Like they like that information. They like to hack themselves. That really appeals to them. And, but a rebel wouldn't like that. They're like, I don't want to write down everything. Like, Oh my gosh. Like the minute you tell me I have to do that, I'm not going to do it. Unless you're a rebel who like finds it fun. Some rebels are like, there's always a rebel who's like, Oh, I think that's fun. It's like, If you find it fun as a rebel, you're going to choose to do it. But are you going to drop it whenever you lose interest in it? Absolutely. And rebels will often do something incredibly consistently and then just give it up because they're like, yeah, I've had my fun with that. Now, some some strategies of habit change work with just with with everybody because they're just not related to the tendencies, like the strategies of convenience and inconvenience. These are super powerful strategies for habit change. If you want yourself to do something, make it more convenient. If you want to make yourself not do something, make it less convenient. If you don't want to eat ice cream, don't buy ice cream, don't have it in the house. You're going to have to drive to the ice cream store to get it. I promise you, you're going to be eating less ice cream at midnight if you're going to have to drive to the all-night grocery store than you are if you've got it in the freezer you know so those some strategies work no matter what your tendency is but some are extreme and, and the strategy of clarity for instance strategy of clarity extremely important both for questioners and for rebels get that clarity well it's it's, it's really important for everybody because we all need to know what we expect from ourselves but it seems to have the m- most kind of motive power with a, with questioners and rebels
0: yeah that's what i was going to say is even though the four tendencies this model that you've created this framework is super specific and only deals with meeting or resisting inner or outer expectations, you can't underplay the importance and the weight that expectations have on ourselves.
1: That is very true. And this weight of of expectation is something that really needs to be thought of all the time because people have very different conceptions of it in ways that can be invisible. Um, So for instance, like one of the scenarios I think is hilarious is, and I love asking people this, about the office coffee mug. If you're you know you're in an office that's got coffee mugs, what do you do with your mug after you've used it? Now, some people are like, well, of course, every person in the world knows that it's the duty of any moral human being to wash and dry their own mug and put it back in the cabinet. So they feel like that's a very clear out of expectation that everybody feels equally responsible to. And if you don't do it, it's because you're just like a selfish jerk. Well, that's not the way everybody sees it. They don't see that expectation the same way. They might, they might really interpret it very differently. And so how do you feel about the fact that there's a sink full of dirty dishes in the kitchen? One person wouldn't think about it at all. Another person would be outraged. Another person would say like, oh my gosh, I'm so busy, but here I have to stand here and do everybody else's dishes because I work with a bunch of slobs. It's this weight. It's like everybody's perceiving it differently. I had this as an upholder. So I work with an obliger and it became clear to me through very kind of indirect, boring reasons that I was, I send everybody emails over the weekends. Um, And I'm like, as an upholder, I'm like, answer them or not. Like, I want to get it off my plate. If you don't want to answer over the weekend, because you don't want to work outside the work week, that's totally cool. Just answer me whenever you want. Like, I don't care. But the obliger felt like, well, I was expecting her to do work over the weekend. And she resented that, which is fair enough. Literally, it had never crossed my mind that any, I didn't, it wasn't even like I thought, is this okay? Yes, this is okay. It's like it had literally never crossed my mind that I should not do that. And then when I found out this person is resenting it, this person is experiencing it as an outer expectation that I'm imposing on her that has to be met. Well, then I learned how to use delay delivery and outlook because I don't really care. But it was important to her. But I didn't know it. But knowing the tendencies made me very much aware of like the fact that it's easier for me to ignore outer expectations because I have my inner expectations as an upholder for an obliger that's trickier. And so I'm now thinking about the way that I res- I'm, I'm out in the world in a very different way and hopefully being less like clueless and um, unthinkingly rude than I was before.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, and and, in regardless of which of these four tendencies we have, like you said earlier, there can be rebels who can be completely considerate. Um, I've been on the opposite end of that email scenario you, you you were just talking about with, with a boss of mine where they were sending out messages and messages and things all weekend. And I mistakenly (laughs) didn't think to not check my email. So that was kind of my approach was, Oh, I know now through learning about them. That they don't expect an answer. Mm-hmm. They're just doing their thing, but mm-hmm. it's on me now to say, you know what? Then I'm going to eliminate my feeling to expect of myself to respond to those emails.
1: But see, and then it gets very complicated because it's like, whose responsibility is it? Right. I would say it'd be better to use delay delivery because then you, I don't put you in the position because you might be like, oh, I can't resist. I feel like this outer weight. It like makes me crazy. I got to answer my boss. It like it can't. But part of it is like, once you know that it's an issue, you can have a conversation. You can say to your boss like, hey, I've just been thinking about this thing about work, work management over the weekends. Let's talk this through. And then you can have like a very peaceful conversation about it. And maybe he's like, you know what? Why don't I just use delay delivery? And then, you know, or you're like, well, why don't we, you could just talk about it. The problem is a lot of times it never occurred to me that it was an issue or like, what if it hadn't, what if you hadn't like sat down and thought to yourself, well, I I really don't want to check my email over the weekend. So I'm going to make this rule for myself. You just did it without, you know, but when you know to say, okay, this is something that could be an issue because people think about it in different ways. Let's just talk it through. You have a 10 minute conversation that could save you hours of dithering, resentment, hesitation, frustration, you know, it can just go away because you just had this conversation. Like I see it one way, you see it another way. How do we set this up? It's not that hard.
0: Yeah. Well, and, and it's in our advantage for us to one, have the book and, and read it, but then and two, fully understand who we are and then be able to look at others and say, Oh, I see they're expecting this of me or not. In other words, You don't necessarily, like other things, have to say to somebody, hey, here, first, before we have this conversation, read this book about the four tendencies, figure out which one you are, then we can have a conversation so how we can work better together. No, even just you reading the book and knowing yourself first is going to make a huge improvement. Yeah, yeah, I really, I really, really hope so. I really, really hope so. So, Gretchen, it's been awesome to talk with you about this. There's so much more to dig into with this. And you do that, in fact, on your podcast that's often in the top of iTunes. And if people haven't heard of it, even despite that, it's Happier with Gretchen Rubin. And I'll put the link to that and all the show notes in there. Uh, you do your podcast with your sister, which I think is pretty cool.
1: Yeah, no, it's so fun. <laughs> and she's an obliger. And so we, we represent two Tennessees, which we talk about a lot. Yeah, it's really, really fun.
0: So I'll put the link to this book and all the – actually, all the books that we've talked about and the podcast and the uh, test. And there's even an app.
1: Yes, there's the Better app. If you search in the app store under Better Gretchen Rubin or you just go to betterapp.us – um, it's an ad, It's free. And it's where people can have all kinds of discussions about the poor tendencies. You can ask questions. You can, you know, if you want to talk to other parents or doctors or whatever. And there's accountability groups. You can start or join an accountability group if you're an obliger who's like, mm, I really need to write my Ph.D. thesis or I really need to get back into running or I really need to, you know, start my side hustle Um, There is an accountability group for everything um, where you could start one and then you can harness the power of other people holding you accountable, which is very effective.
0: Awesome. And we know for some of us that's going to be huge. So, Gretchen, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me today.
1: It was so fun. Thanks for having me.
0: I hope you can see how this episode ties in with those recent episodes that I mentioned. The episode with John Acuff and the episode with Ian Cron. Knowing yourself and knowing others, for that matter, and working better with them is a huge deal in terms of productivity. If you haven't listened to those episodes, I have linked them up in the show notes for this episode, which you can find at beyondthetodolist.com slash 190. Thanks again for listening to this episode of Beyond the To-Do List. Don't forget, you can grab your free trial for Formstack and get 25% off your first three months. Head on over to Formstack.com/slash beyond to grab that deal. And if you found this episode helpful, I would love it if you would think of that one person that you know needs to hear it and send it along after you've gone over to the show notes. Beyond the to do slash one nine zero. Thanks for sharing, thanks for listening, and I'll see you next episode.